0: That song's really about commitment, isn't it? Just to, I'm sure some of you came in this morning with things that you, you need totally to commit to God. Um, here's one thing for you to be praying about. Um, young lady right now is in labor at Sparrow Hospital. Her name is Jana Wheland, Scott and Tanya Wheeland's uh, daughter-in-law, Sam's wife. And um, be praying about that because um, the baby is six weeks premature and, and they knew, um, but she couldn't keep it any longer because of the uh, um, possibility of infection. So, you know, they're in a situation like each of us this morning where we've got to commit something to God. So with arms high, heart abandoned, we just commit things to God and, and trust that he's going to accomplish things according to his purpose for, for what he's trying to do. So, a matter of fact, how about if we pray for Jana right now? Would you do that with me? Let's pray together for Jana and Sam. Father, we come before you and just lift uh, Jana up to you in the midst of the labor that she's in at Sparrow Hospital right now, and we ask for your protection over the life of that child. And that even though it's going to be born premature according to what we know to be a full-term pregnancy, it's not premature according to your plans. And you have a purpose in this, and so we offer that baby girl up to you and just ask that you would protect her and that you give her a healthy life. We look forward to the complete healing of Jana, and we just trust you with that in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for doing that. I'll I'll let them know that we prayed for them. Well, we're going into Hebrews this morning again, Hebrews chapter 11. And as a matter of fact, Hebrews 11 is the whole reason I started teaching the book of Hebrews. Back in November of last year, I was talking to uh, people on staff and people in leadership here and said, I want to teach Hebrews chapter 11. And I got pushback. Um, Individuals who said, well, you can't just teach Hebrews chapter 11. You've got to teach the whole book. And I said, okay. Um, I could do that. So I'll start in February, and we'll get to Hebrews chapter 11 by April. (laughs) Right, yeah. Okay, so here it is, July, and we're coming into Hebrews chapter 11. And it's this brilliant, unbelievable explanation of, of what faith looks like. And he speaks with such eloquence and with such power that I realize that we can't just do it In one or two Sundays and do it justice so here's what we're gonna do this morning we're gonna do Hebrews chapter 11 verses 1 through 3 just three verses and then after Labor Day we're gonna come back to Hebrews chapter 11 so next weekend we'll be in Hebrews chapter 12 and here's the reason for that Hebrews chapter 11 after verse 3 is all about the giants of the faith and he starts out with individuals he starts with creation first and then he works his way down through this long list of Abraham and Isaac and David and then Moses and so what we're going to do is a character study in in the month of September starting after Labor Day and the series is going to be a short one but it's going to be called I Need a Hero and you'll understand why you need a hero after we go through what we're going to go through this morning. So tell your friends and neighbors that uh, we're going to do that short series to help them understand what faith looks like because a lot of people have a question about that. Common question today, what is faith? Because maybe in your walk with Christ or if you're not a believer in Christ yet, you've had somebody say to you, you just need to have faith. Well, the common response would be, what is faith? What, What does that really look like? Well, I listed that on the website this week and put that title up on the screen just to ask the question, what is faith? What is that? Well, we have this definition in Hebrews 11.1, 1, and what we have to contrast it to is God's definition versus man's definition. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, you may not think of yourself as a person of faith this morning. But I'm going to assure you that you are, whether or not you're a believer in Jesus Christ. So here's what I'm going to ask the entire room to do. I've asked the other two services to do it as well. I'm going to ask you on the count of three to say with me, I am a person of faith. Whether or not you agree with that statement, I'm going to back it up, and I'm going to just ask you to say it, trusting me in faith that I'm accurate, okay? So on three, I want you to say, I'm a person of faith. One, two, three. I am a person of faith. And here's how I can back that up. There's a form of faith that is built into us in our human nature. And it begins with us as an infant. The little baby being born in Sparrow Hospital this morning will, without even knowing, without even being able to articulate, have to have faith that the adults around it is going to take care of it. It's part of our human nature. I call it functional faith. Now here's an an example for you. Some of you are going to go out to dinner after church today. You're going you're gonna to purchase a meal. You purchase that meal, or perhaps later this week, in functional faith, believing that the people who prepared your meal back in the kitchen didn't do damage to your meal that will cause you harm, right? So we purchase a meal believing in confidence it's not going to harm us. But in the midst of that, we use common sense. So we don't buy sushi at gas stations, right? Okay, just tracking with me on that. All right, so if you do, you'll remember that moment a long time. So we use common sense in the midst of that, but we do it in confidence believing that the people who prepared it didn't mean us harm. We'll crack open a bottle of water and drink a bottle of water believing that the people at the water bottling plant did not lace it with poison, that they didn't mean us harm. So in faith, move forward. Today, we accept payment in the form of paper. We do work for an employer, and and they give us a piece of paper in exchange saying that that's worth something, because we have faith in our government to back the money, right? Right? Okay. Okay, so we're not trading roosters and chickens yet. I mean, there's no egg exchanges going on. Like, years ago, we believe that that paper has some value to it, that our government backs it. See, without a basic level of faith, we can't function as a society, We can't function as a people. So you can say, I am a person of faith. We willingly accept and trust in our food, in our water, in in our medical service. And we do that by our own decision. Would you agree? So we willingly commit to faith in those things. Now let me contrast that for you to saving faith, the kind of faith that God speaks of. Saving faith is something that requires confidence in a completely different source, something necessarily outside the realm of our understanding. And we understand that saving faith actually originates with God. It proceeds from Him, something that He's given to you as a gift if you have faith this morning in God. It's because he gave you that ability to have that faith. Look with me on the screen, Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It didn't even originate with you. It originated with him. So your faith, if you have faith in Jesus this morning, it includes your own decision. But understand, it proceeds from God. So number one thing you should get down when you think of saving faith or faith as it relates to God, that faith is a gift from him. So God has planted in your heart the ability to believe. Now, there's three stages to a person who has saving faith that I want to explain for you very briefly this morning. They'll click by fairly quickly. and I don't think they're in your notes, but you'll see them up on the screen. These three stages. The first stage is the felt need stage. And the second stage is the content, or what we would call the substance stage. And and the third is the commitment stage. So let's go to the first one first, this felt need stage. We would agree, I think, as a whole, probably, this room, that the need for salvation is real. Would you agree with that? Okay, the need for salvation is real, whether or not it's recognized, so the need for it is real, but it's not always recognized. There's no reason to believe until the need is felt, correct? So until, until the need is recognized or it's felt, it's really not something that we necessarily know that we need. So here's my example for that. Saul, you read about him in the New Testament. He, he was, his name was changed later to Paul. He's responsible for authoring much of the New Testament. Saul, persecuting the church carrying out the execution of Christians, throwing Christians in jail, torturing believers in Jesus Christ, did not have a felt need for salvation, even though he clearly knew something was wrong in his life. When you read his writings in Thessalonians and his writings in Corinthians, you can see that as he looks back over the younger years of his life, he totally knew that he was seething with rage. He was filled with anger. He knew something was wrong in his life but he didn't necessarily know that he needed salvation until God intercepted him on the road to Damascus. And in that moment, he felt the need because God revealed himself to Paul, to Saul, and said, here's who I am. And in that moment, Saul recognized, I need that Savior. So God intercepted him, and the need became felt. Here's the truth of felt need. Felt need does not require theological depth. What it requires is a sincere heart. Now, in Paul's case, he happened to have theological depth. He had an understanding of who God is. He knew a lot about God. But it doesn't require that. It just requires a sincere heart. So felt need is essential, but it's really incomplete to stop there. So let's go to the second stage. The second stage is what we would call the content stage or the substance stage. Now, a person doesn't have to comprehend theological doctrine. They don't have to understand the doctrine of salvation to be saved, but they do need the gospel truth. Individuals do need to know that they're a sinner in need of a Savior. That's part of the substance stage, needing to grasp the truth of the gospel. Here's an extreme example for you. Lee Strobel. Now, Lee authored this particular book that I hold in my hand. His wife became a believer in Jesus Christ in the 1980s. Lee is a graduate of Yale University with a law degree. He was the editor for the Chicago Sun-Times legal column. Now he was very frustrated that his wife became a believer in Jesus because he was an atheist, a devout atheist, a very committed atheist. So he was so committed that he decided, using his legal skills, his investigative reporting ability, and his Yale Law degree background, that what he would do is set out to disprove the claims of Jesus Christ. And so Lee, as a result, and you know where this story is going, decided that as a result of all of his investigative work, that Jesus is the real deal. And so he wrote this book called "The Case for Christ," because he literally made the case that Jesus is real, everything that we read about is real. Now so he's an extreme example because he went to the content stage, or the substance stage and began investigating, 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 he's saying, "Is this thing real?" So the substance stage is essential, but if you stop there, you're stuck. You don't move to the third most important stage, and the most important stage is the commitment stage, and that is the climax of faith, saving faith, because without commitment, there's no saving faith. Many people get stuck in the content stage, and they never move on to the commitment stage. Many people express confidence that Jesus is who he said he was, 83% of the American population says, Jesus absolutely was a real historical figure and I believe that he was the son of the living God. But do 83% of Americans live as though they're really committed Christians, committed to Jesus Christ? You don't have to answer that right now. Just process what you see around you and ask yourself if you know that, that to be true. See, true believers totally commit to Jesus They have a faith that is a saving faith, trusting him no matter what, no matter the circumstances. Now, let me rabbit trail just for a moment before we go into verse 1. There's an idea that blind faith is very spiritual. As a matter of fact, when you hear someone use the word, "I, I have... Faith that I'm just going to jump off this ledge and God's going to catch me. The concept of blind faith sounds really spiritual, but I'm here to tell you this morning, it is not biblical. It is not biblical whatsoever, and it is not wise. The God of the Bible doesn't require faith without giving reason for it. So if you've been part of the study of the book of Hebrews so far, you've seen this author over the course of 10 chapters lay the case for why Jesus is better. He says Jesus is better than the angels, better than the Old Testament system, better than the sacrificial covenant. He's making the case. He's giving evidence. So our God does not require faith without giving reason for it. As a matter of fact, he gives lots and lots of evidence for why we're supposed to believe what we believe. It's not blind faith. So let's move forward into verse 1, and and we link it with where we left off at last week in verse 38. Hebrews 10.38 was kind of a quote of an Old Testament statement. Let me refresh you on that. It says, My righteous ones shall live by faith. So he's already presented to us the principle of faith, and, and he's talking about these saints throughout chapter 11 who are examples of that. Why? Because these people who have received this letter are tempted to go back to what they could see what they could touch, what they knew was safe. They want to go back to Judaism because it was a, it was a safe category for them to be in. From an earthly view, they knew the parameters. And that's why he's going to make the argument for what does faith really look like. So let me put verse 1 up on the screen, and it says this, Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now this is a description of faith. It's not necessarily a complete definition. But here's what I want to do. I don't know what Bible translation you're holding in your hands this morning. What you see on the screen is the English Standard Version, the ESV. It's what's in our pew racks this morning. But you might have an NIV or NASB or King James. What I'm going to put up on the screen for you is a contrast of the ESV with the King James Version. And look at the difference in the words. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen, ESV. King James Version, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. How many of you grew up in church with a King James Bible? Quite a few of you, okay. so Some of you may still even own one today. Now, many people have traded in their King James because we've been told the NASB is much more accurate, their ESV is much more accurate. Well, that's true. By and large, it is much, much, much more accurate in its translation. However, in this particular case, I think the King James Version got it right and and used the proper words in the translation because of what you're going to see in substance as compared to assurance because in the English language, if I say something is assured versus something has substance, it means something totally different, doesn't it? But in the Greek language, the word has the exact same meaning and it's the word hypostasis. Here what we see right away is biblical faith is not blind optimism. And it's not manufacturing this, I hope it's real feeling. We're, we're not manufacturing or ginning up emotion. And it's certainly not believing in spite of evidence to the contrary. That would be superstition. And we're not people of superstition. We're people of faith. So what is this hypostasis thing that he's talking about? What does it mean when he says we have a substance? Well, here's this word, Hypostasis is the only Greek word you're going to get this morning. And it's a compound word this construction of two very specific meanings in the Greek language, but here is an easy version of it. Hupostasis is a concrete foundation. It's, it's a building term or a construction term. It's something that goes deep into the ground. And so we would understand when we begin looking at that with a, with a building mindset that this faith that we have is the substructure of everything that we do throughout the course of our life. Literally, if you were to read it in the Greek language, it would say faith is literally that which stands under. So this substructure of all the Christian life is, let me put it in building terms. To a Christian, faith is what a concrete foundation is to a skyscraper. It's that thing that is so deep that we have the assurance that it will stand So if your faith is a gift from God, and that's what we've already established, your faith is not of yourself, it's a gift from God, then it's God's way by default of giving me substance that what he promised actually is real, that it will be accomplished, it will unfold. So I'll give you a sentence to process as we move forward. Here's my statement for you. True biblical faith is confident submission To God's word in spite of circumstances, not in spite of evidence. You need to really process that, especially in the world that we live in today, when individuals are saying we have evidence to the contrary. So, true biblical faith is confident submission to God's word in spite of circumstances, not in spite of evidence. I want to support that as we move forward. Here's the struggle how we see and interpret evidence greatly affects our reaction to it. In other words, do we see the whole, do we see the whole picture in the midst of the circumstances? Commonly, I have to say to myself, Mark, rise above the circumstances. Look at the horizon. Get the whole picture. Because many times, I'm guilty of seeing in parts. Anybody here agree with that? You see parts and pieces? Paul said that was a problem for him. Look with me at 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. You and I get bits and pieces. We we don't understand the whole picture. Now the theological truth of verse 1 may have sounded really complex to you up to this point. But understand, the working truth of it is really simple. And here's the working truth. God speaks. We hear His Word. We trust His Word. And we act on His Word no matter what, no matter the circumstances. And that's where the commitment part comes in. And that circumstance component is where the real struggle starts for most people. Because we can see the circumstances, They're tangible, they're physical, they're right in front of us. And many times it seems like the circumstance is the whole, and the whole starts to seem impossible. And those circumstances lead to consequences, and the consequences can be terrifying. Now, here's the truth when circumstances seem impossible, it's in those moments that you need to be reminded that God's got your back and your front and your left and your right and your head and your toes. It doesn't always feel like it. The circumstances make us feel totally different. But God's word stands sure. And Romans 8 says something like this. God causes all things to work together for our good. Is that an accurate statement? I'm setting you up. Sorry. There's a word that's wrong. Let me show you Romans 8.28. Because many people use the first version and try and apply it to their life, let's look at the way God said it. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. What's the wrong word, church? You you mean it's not about me? What? It's about God's whole picture? It's not about Mark? Mark? Our society is very capable of inserting the word our in there because we want to believe it's all about us. And in the midst of our circumstances, it becomes really confusing to us when we say, wait, I thought the Bible said that it's for our good. It doesn't feel like it's for my good. But the object of our faith is the living God. And the living God has a much bigger perspective than what we do. He sees the whole. And according to his word, he's working for good even when the circumstances cause you to feel otherwise. That's why only three verses later, Romans 8.31, Paul went on to say, if God's for you, who can be against you? Even when you're being thrown into prison. And Paul knew that because he wrote that from prison. He understood that things don't always seem like they're going the way they're supposed to from my perspective, but God's working things together for good. So let's go into verse 1 and kind of break it down just for a moment since we're only doing a couple verses here. Verse 1 says this, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Now these individuals are looking forward, meaning they, they're, they know that there's something out there that hasn't been unveiled yet. Hebrews 11.1, one, it's the substance of things hoped for. Let's use an Old Testament example that God gave them something to look forward to. So in the Old Testament, we understand that God projected a promise to those individuals who needed to look forward to the hope. He projected a promise that there would be a Messiah one day, that there would be a Deliverer. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, God said, one day, there's going to be one coming who's going to give a restart to this. And so they lived in hope that he would take away sin. There I'm going to give you just 3 verses, but there's hundreds of these that give this prophetic suggestion or God projection that there would be a Messiah. Here's the very first one, Genesis 3:15. And it says this, God speaking, "And I will put enmity between you and the woman." Who's the you? Lucifer. God speaking to Satan and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now, Eve, up to this point, hadn't had any babies. She's not a mom, but God's saying she's going to have seed. There's going to be those who come from her, and so I'm putting enmity between you, Lucifer, and between this woman who will be the the mother progenitor of this one coming, and here where God speaks of Jesus. He shall bruise, or in the English language, literally crush your head. He will destroy you. And to Lucifer, and you shall bruise him on the heel. It was God's prophetic way of speaking of the crucifixion. So there we are, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, God saying, there's a promise. There's a hope. There's one coming. God also spoke of a day that you and I would be made clean, that our sins would be wiped away, that we would be healed. Isaiah 53, 5. It says this, The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. A prophetic projection Here's the last one. God promised the resurrection of Jesus in the Old Testament. It comes from Psalm 1610. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Speaking of the body in the tomb, it's not going to rot. It's not going to stay in the tomb. He will be resurrected. So all these projections, all these prophetic verses pointing for these individuals to determine whether or not are we going to believe God's word Are we going to believe the circumstances? Well, according to what Hebrews 11 is telling us, faith is the substance of things hoped for, meaning we're looking forward to God's promise, something that hasn't been unveiled yet. So these faithful people in the Old Testament, they anticipated these promises even though they were incomplete. They didn't have all the specifics. They didn't have what you have today, but they had God's word and they put their hope in God's word. So they took God at his word, and they lived on that basis. Here's the example. Moses, let your eyes drift down the page to verse 26, and you see that Moses is one of those giants of the faith that this author refers to. And he says, in Moses' case, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward, meaning he's looking to the messianic hope. He's going to reject all the things that Pharaoh had promised him. Gold, silver, rings, power, authority to rule. Why? He's exchanging the things that he could see for a Messiah that he could not see. Jesus wouldn't be born for 1,400 more years. Moses didn't even know the name Jesus. But he knew of a Christ, a Messiah, a Mashiach. See, what faith does for you this morning is it gives you the ability to have confidence in the things that are yet unseen. You have a present-day assurance. See, you've got this certainty of things that other people consider impossible. Here's what I know about you this morning. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I know that you believe in a God whose audible voice you've never heard. You believe in a Jesus whose face you've never seen. You believe in a heaven, which according to Scripture, it hasn't even entered into the heart of man, the things that God has in store for you. You believe these things because you have this rock foundation deep in the ground that is a gift from God. Now, how are you different from a person who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ? Well, the natural man would say, trust in the physical. They're 180 degrees opposite of you. It doesn't mean that we don't have confidence in the physical, but a natural man would say, put your faith in the things that you can see. But you, as a person who believes in Jesus Christ, who have faith without having seen him, do you know that Jesus said you're hyper-blessed? Look with me on the screen. He's talking to Thomas. Thomas, who is one of his own disciples, who doubted, john twenty twenty nine says this then Jesus told him, meaning Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Now the last half of verse one says it 's also the evidence of things not seen hebrews eleven one so this this concept of evidence and conviction of things not seen it 's the same truth as part one. He just carries it a step further, so very briefly here 's what the implication is there 's a response. There's an outward manifestation in my life that the things that I know to be true are going to be evident to other people around me. So a person of faith lives out their belief. Your daily life is committed to what you know to be true. He uses Noah as an example, so I'm going to lean into Noah for just a moment. Would you say that Noah could have done the things that he did without having absolute faith in God? It wouldn't be possible, would it? So we take this, this simple truth principle, we hear God's word, we trust his word, and we act on his word. That's Noah. He could not have taken on this task without having had absolute in confidence and faith in God's word. So when God said to Noah, hey Noah, it's going to rain, you know what Noah's response is? What's well, rain? It had never rained on planet earth. You read Genesis 1 through Genesis 6, it's an underground sprinkler system. There's dew that's watering the ground, but nobody had ever seen rain before. And this man, who had never even seen rain, didn't know what a boat looked like, agrees to do what God had said to do. So God spoke, he heard God's word, he trusts God's word, and he acts on God's word. So the building of the ark, that's just an outflow of what he is internally, a person of faith. He knew that God's plan was correct. So quickly here's verse 2 it says for it for by it the people of old received their commendation they gained approval they gained approval by God because of their faith and notice there's no other qualifiers nothing else gets God's commendation except faith so faith is not one of many ways to God it's the only way to God that's what Scripture tells us because Hebrews eleven six, 6, let your eyes drift down the page again. It says this, without faith, it is impossible to please Him. You're not going to get there without faith. Now, here's the dilemma. 2014, modern man finds himself with a problem, and it's, it's a willing problem, something that's been self-inflicted. In the past 200 years, there has been a conscious, systematic approach worldwide to undercut the doctrine of the supernatural. And so you see it surfacing in multiple areas, especially in academia, and the primary target has been the Bible. Because if you can discredit the Bible and discredit the supernatural within the Bible, you can therefore remove the reality that there is a God and that he exists. So the goal is to contradict the supernatural claims of Scripture, reducing all reality to the realm of natural reasoning. And it's dealing only with the physical senses. So over the last 200 years, a steady progression towards let's deal with what we can see, what we can observe, what we can touch, what we can measure. Not that that's wrong, but doing it in contradiction of Scripture. Here's the problem. It makes man the measuring rod. Man becomes then the measuring rod of all truth, as opposed to God's Word being the measuring rod of truth. Instead of the former, in which the ancients would say, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. More recently, we would say, if human science says it, I will believe it. Uh, you may not have ever heard this before, but just going to throw it out there. That's the exact same tactic that Satan used in the garden. Now, follow my line of reasoning on this. Satan shows up and begins talking to Adam and Eve. His first question, did God really say? He's questioning God's word. In other words, the authority of the word of God. And when you put God's word on trial, you put man in the position of being the measuring rod. So the very first commitment of temptation was to say, did God really say, therefore, Adam and Eve, you get the right to decide, is God's word true or not? In, 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 outside of saying God's word is always true. So ultimately, here's what we're talking about. Everything outside the sphere of man's physical experience Everything out the sphere, outside the sphere of man's intellectual understanding has been dismissed. And when God's word is ruled out, man begins to lose purpose and meaning and begins to feel devoid because he's his own measuring rod. And he, he loses his bearing as to what is my purpose? Why am I here? Why does this world exist? And can't find to expect any purpose outside of himself. Here's the problem it leads to, and you're witnessing it today in 2014, this insatiable appetite that humanity has for material consumption, trying to fill this God-sized hole, trying to understand what is purpose, what is meaning. Maybe the next material thing I purchase will actually fill that hole. The truth of the Scriptures are only the God who made man can ever satisfy man. It's God's Word. Only the God who made the universe can show man any purpose in the universe. That's why he ends with verse 3 by saying the universe is one of the greatest examples. So here we go with the end, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So here's something that your faith does for you this morning. Perhaps you've never stopped to consider it before. Your faith gives you confidence in, And convictions about creation. The visible universe is not sufficient to account for itself. It can't. And so God's Word says it can't because it was made out of things that are not even visible. The ancients didn't see God's act of creating. But they believed in his creation because they could see his creation. So they knew and accepted truth by faith. So the author uses these big phrases the universe, which is the word Ionos, A I O N S. And literally, he's not talking about planet Earth, it's talking about the entire universe nebula, stars, everything that you can see in the nighttime sky. It's referring to the entire universe, its operation, its direction, when it will end. And so he uses the word Ionos, and he says it was created by the word, the Rema of God. What's he doing? He's linking thinking with Genesis. In the beginning, God said, let there be. And God said, let there be. And God said, let there be. So by the word of God, everything he's stressing explicitly did not originate from the visible. It originated from the originator. So verse 3 is this cataclysmic claim, and it's the one that unbelievers struggle the most with. Absolutely brilliant, breathtaking claim. What we see was not made out of things visible. In other words, to understand creation requires faith at the very start. So if you are a person who believes in a creator this morning, that's a gift from God. God gave you the capacity to see that. To understand creation requires faith at the start. Now to end this, let me take the conversation outside of the Bible. but Not to close your Bibles necessarily, but let's just take it outside of the Bible. The discussion of the origins of the universe have gone on for millennia, literally centuries in the last couple hundred years for sure. We have seen individuals... Positing theories about where did the universe come from, where did I come from. But after 200 years of heated debate, 200 plus years, philosophy and science are no closer to an answer. They, they, the most brilliant minds can't come to a place where they've discovered origins, because the origin of man and the origin of the universe is so far outside of the scope of man's knowledge, Any attempts to try and discover it outside of faith is going to lead to frustration and bickering and arguments, and you see that among peers in the world of academia today. Here's an example. Dr. T. L. Moore is a professor of physics, and this is his observation about some of his colleagues. To talk of the evolution of thought from sea slime to amoeba, from amoeba to self-conscious thinking man, means nothing. It is the easy solution of a thoughtless brain. Now, how would you like to open that up and see that your colleague thinks that about you? But, but understand, the frustration comes from individuals trying to find a source or an answer outside of God's Word. Paul warned about this very thing. 1 Corinthians says this, or Colossians, I'm sorry, Colossians 2, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men. So you and I this morning, if you're a believer, through faith, we understand The worlds were framed by the word of God. Let there be. And it was. That's what scripture says. So I accept that there are realities which exist for which there are no material evidence whatsoever. That doesn't make it any less real. It just makes me a person of faith. I understand that there's some things that are beyond the realm of scientific investigation. So here's what your faith does for you this morning. And it puts you in a whole new category. Your faith comprehends that which the mind of man, no matter how brilliant, cannot begin to fathom. So don't be surprised when you're in conversations with friends and family members or colleagues at work who are not believers, and if you are a believer, when there's a glaze over the eyes, if you start talking about creation. Because they can't understand outside of faith. So I'd like to ask you to depart this morning with an agreement with me. You, you don't have to audibly make the agreement, just perhaps mentally. That the next time that you find yourself in a situation where you have to say, I am a person of faith, that you make no apology for that. The next time you find yourself in a conversation where someone pushes back about what you believe, you make no apology for what you know to be true. Because God's word says, there's things my eye have never seen. There's things my ear has never heard. There's things that have never entered into the heart of man. All that God has prepared. Let me remind you from God's word. It says that literally. 1 Corinthians 2.9, things which the eye has not seen and the ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man All that God has prepared for those who love Him. Notice the second part. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So here's Mark Kring's definition of faith this morning My faith is a response to what God has revealed. My faith is a response to what God has revealed. The best way to grow in your faith, if you feel like you're not growing, you're not increasing in your walk, is to walk with the faithful. And so that's why we're going to do the series, I Need a Hero, coming up in September. Because we do. We need to walk with the faithful and see how they lived out their lives. What set them apart? Why were they so remarkable? It's not just unique to our generation. That's why it was written 2,000 years ago. We all need to understand what does it mean to be faithful to God? Let me pray with you right now about that, that God would seal that truth in our heart. Would you bow with me about that? Father, we come before you recognizing with our our eyes closed and our heads bowed that we are your creation and we come before you in humility, but we also come in boldness because you said just by mentioning the name of Jesus, we're ushered right into the throne room and we stand before you as the living God of wonders. I ask, Father, on behalf of our church and all those who will listen online, that you would take the truth of these words and you embed them deeply in our heart. That what you have put for us will not return void, and you've promised that it would not, but that it will accomplish the purpose for what you sent it forth. You've sent your word forth today, and I ask that you would use it to embolden your people, that we can walk before you more confidently and certain and sure of the promises that you made to us without any wavering whatsoever. Father, make that true in the lives of your people here today. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.